people. And now what Paul is wanting to do is say, but where does, where does he fit in? And so what he's gonna communicate is, is his role in leading this particular group of people. And what is his part in this grand story that is unfolding? And so he's gonna tell us that uh, his, uh, he, will, um, he will work hard uh, because Christ has done some work already in him. Uh, he will work based on the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus is his goal and the beneficiary of all of his work is going to be the church. And he's gonna let them know that he is committed to presenting them mature in Jesus. And he's gonna let them know that there is this secret plan that God has now been revealing um, through the purposes and work of Paul. So, so now I, Paul is establishing his leadership. He's, he's calling them to, to follow his lead. And then this is the phrase that I'm sure you picked up on. I rejoice in my sufferings. So now I rejoice in my sufferings. And what do you do with that phrase, right? What do you, what do, you do when you come across a, a phrase like that that you think, if that's true, he's crazy, right? Like that, that's heavy stuff. What do you mean you rejoice in your sufferings? And I think a lot of times we try and figure out ways around passages of scripture like that. One way is we just try and run past it and ignore it and pretend like, you know, we're a little kid playing hide and seek. Like if you don't see me, then I, you know, if I can't see you, you don't see me, right? You just hide like this. So we just kind of pretend like that's not there. I think also we think of hyperbole, like, you know, that's Paul. He's the apostle Paul. He's always saying kind of outrageous things. So he doesn't really rejoice in suffering. What he's saying is you might be able to find a silver lining if you look hard enough. Um, you might dismiss it as ridiculous, you might say, yeah, I know that type of Christian. Everything's just fine all the time. Just praising Jesus, right? And, and so they're going through terrible things and they never even like break stride. They're just praising all the way through it. And you're like, yeah, that's not even human, right? So, so, so we have to do something with a passage like this. I think some of us look at it and say, I can never be that. Like, that's not me. So the Apostle Paul has just set a standard that I will never attain to. So there's gonna be like the Apostle Paul type Christians and then the Christians like me because I'm never going to be able to rejoice in my sufferings. This morning what I wanna do is I wanna look at the passage of 24 to 29 uh, and I wanna offer you a more careful reading of the text, a more careful reading of the passage where I think um, it can provide you with a way of understanding how you can rejoice in your suffering. And I'll tell you what I believe is this, that you will be able to look at your suffering and you will be able to say, it's gonna be worth it that you'll be able to walk through periods of difficulty and pain with the conviction of it's gonna be worth it. And I think that's what Paul is wanting to drive them towards. He's using himself as the example, 
and he's going to say, follow me as I'm following Jesus. Let's go. And I think he's going to train them in coming to this very conclusion that it's going to be worth it so that they would be able to rejoice in their suffering. And I think we can rejoice because there's something a little further up the trail that makes the suffering worthwhile. I mean, I think about this every time I hike, right? Every, I don't think about this if I ever run. I just think that's dreaded, awful experience. But when I hike, I can think about this, that there's something up ahead that makes this struggle worthwhile. Uh, at the, in the fall of 2018, I got to go hiking with Law um, in Shenandoah National Park. And uh, so you see on the right, top right of that image is um, Old Rag Mountain. That's what we're climbing up. Uh, and then you can see Law in the bottom left. He's making a left turn uh, because at the beginning of the trail, there were all of these switchbacks in order to get up there, right? So what Law and I did is we wanted to get up to the mountain early in the day. So we started early. We picked the route where the difficult, the most difficult part of the hike would be at the beginning so that as we get a little bit fatigued, well, let's be honest, so as I got a little bit fatigued, um, we would be, you know, I would be okay uh, coming down on the easier part of the hike. It was tough. It was hard. Um, but at the same time, it was fantastic. Uh, it was amazing. We got to do, uh, there were different parts of the trail where we had to do rock scrambling. We had to slide our way through uh, different passages. Uh, and, and what was funny to me um, is as we would do this, again, we were kind of, we, we had a good clip. We were making our way up, but we would pause at different places just to look out and just see how gorgeous it was, right? So all the way to the top, there would be these little moments where you could get a glimpse. The trees would break and you would get a glimpse of, wow, there, there, there's some beauty on the journey itself. So we would get to the top. We got up there. We found our spot to sit, had a beautiful view at the top. You can see my feet resting at the top of Old Rag Mountain. And there's Law sitting on the peak. Hope I'm frozen. There we go. So we got up to the top and then we have to journey our way down. And so on our way down, as we start our descent, uh, we come across some other people that are on their way up. And so it was nice to be able to say, listen, you're, al you're almost there. You look like you're about to die, but you got just a, you know, a few more minutes and you're gonna, be, you're gonna be at the top. But then we continue on our journey down to the bottom and we get closer to the parking lot and there are some people that are starting out on the journey and they also look spent. They also look exhausted. So the best that I can offer them is, listen, you got a long way to go. It's gonna be really hard, but it is totally worth it, right? It is worth it. To get to the top, it is, it is worth it. To get to the point where you get to do the rock scrambling, to get to see the, 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 the Shenandoah Mountains and the fall colors, it's, it's gonna be worth it. To get to the point where you're dangling your feet over the edge because you've reached the pinnacle, it's going to be worth it. And without being comprehensive, I think also without being um, so overly systematic, I think that's what Paul's gonna offer us over the next few verses is his answer to the question, like how can I rejoice in suffering? His answer is going to be, it's gonna be worth it. And it's gonna be worth it for five reasons. 
And that's what we're gonna look at over these next couple of passages is five reasons why suffering uh, is worth it. All right, so I wanna pray and then we're gonna get into point number one. So Jesus, I, I recognize that what we're dealing with, what we're handling right now um, is the fine china of people's lives. When we start talking about suffering, we're talking about uh, days, weeks, seasons of life where some of the most treasured things uh, have been trampled, have been hurt, have been broken. And so God, I, I just ask by your Holy Spirit that you would minister truth very gently and very specifically to hearts that are vulnerable. So thank you, Jesus. I thank you for passages of scripture that point to us or point us to the fact that we can have hope in the middle of what's difficult. And so I pray, God, uh, that you would teach us this morning. Amen. All right, so number one is it is worth it. Suffering is worth it for your sake. Right, so that's what Paul says, again, using his own example. Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. This has come up a lot already. This is, we're finishing up Colossians chapter one and probably three, maybe four times already, Paul has talked about like his labor connected to them becoming mature, them becoming filled, them growing up, right? So the point is Paul walks through suffering for your sake sake. So Paul's not just some freak who likes pain, but rather he's found a space within his suffering for joy because he sees that suffering has a purpose. He is suffering for their sake. So now the, the, the natural question is to ask, well, well, how did Paul's suffering impact the church at Colossae, right? That's a very natural question. And I've studied, I've read, I've researched, and my answer is I have no idea. I have no idea how Paul's suffering helped that church. Paul didn't plant the church, right? Paul, Paul wasn't their pastor, that was Epaphras. So to our knowledge, Paul never even visited that group of people. But in some way, he said, my suffering is connected to your maturity, so that it is for your sake that I suffer. Now, I do have um, a, a suggestion that I made up. This is not something I found in scripture. But what we do know in scripture is that Epaphras is with Paul. And we also know that Paul's writing from where? Where's Paul writing this letter from? Prison. So he's suffering, he's in jail, right? Things aren't going well for the Apostle Paul. So he's in prison and he's writing this letter. Now it could be that the circumstances of Paul being able to push pause on his ministry, to be able to hang out with Epaphras, to have a sort of forced sabbatical, was an opportunity for Paul to even write this letter to the church at Colossae, right? And maybe that's what Paul is saying is, my suffering is beneficial for you because I'm able to offer you these perspectives, these truths about God. I'm able to spend time with your pastor and to encourage him and his responsibility with you. I, I don't know the answer, 
But I think, I think it's profound that we don't have the answer. Because isn't that often the case in suffering? Like it would be nice to be able to say, oh, suffering, and then this happened, and this is even bigger and better than the suffering we experience. Rarely does that happen. This is a faith-based statement to be able to say, I am suffering for your sake. That this is producing maturity in you. How? I don't know. And that is often the way of suffering. Sometimes God kind of pulls back the curtain and and gives us insight into the inner workings of of the mystery of his sovereignty, of, 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 of changing people, drawing people to himself. Sometimes he does that. Most of the time he doesn't. Or most of the time, if he does, we miss it. So the first point that Paul is offering is that they are suffering for your sake. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, suffering is not good in itself. What is good in any painful experience uh, for the sufferer is his submission to the will of God. Right? There's, there's benefit to suffer for the will of God, which we're gonna pick up on that point in a minute. And for the spectators, the compassion aroused and the acts of mercy to which it leads, right? So as others get to watch you walk through suffering, there is something of compassion that is birthed in them, gifts that are are given through them as they would draw close to you in your point of need, in your point of brokenness, which is often the case for us is it's hard for us to receive help, right? Like some of us are just not good at receiving help and so often when I'm talking with, to someone that, that's in that position, like it is so hard for me to receive help. My, my response to them, but it is so great for all of us to be able to help you, right? We're able to leverage our gifts. We're able to use what God has put in us for your benefit. So the first mystery that Paul is unveiling is that suffering, it is worth it because it is for your sake, Number two, suffering is worth it because suffering is never wasted. In the body of Christ, because of the work of Jesus, for his children, suffering is never wasted. Now, that's easy for me to say here. But there will be moments where the lie will come at you as you're walking through suffering is that this is in vain, there is no purpose, this is completely random, and that's a lie. Suffering is never wasted in the body of Christ. Now, what you need to understand is that for Paul, world history is divided into really two ages. There's this present evil age, You can see that in Galatians 1, 4. And then there's the age that is to come, right? So there's these two ages. And then there's this great moment, right, in history when God's people will move from one age to the next. And so our suffering is to be understood as the birth pains from moving from one age to the next. Look at Romans 8. 
For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, right? So we are in this place of of what God is doing through suffering is he is birthing something new. You see that at the end? What are we waiting for? We're adopted as sons, but we're waiting for the full redemption of our bodies. Now, as I said, there's these two ages, but the ages don't butt up against each other like one ends, the other one starts. They overlap. And the overlap started at the resurrection of King Jesus. And when Jesus came back from the dead, there was this new age that started because now God's people had victory over a great enemy, which was death. And so the new age started, but the new age is not complete yet. We are not whole yet. We are not perfect yet. So something has started, but it is not yet complete. And suffering is the tool God uses to bring about the new birth of the new age. So just as Jesus, right? Remember Jesus, how was he known in the new age? How did they identify Jesus? The scars. They knew who he was because he had gone through the path of suffering. Right, so suffering is going to uh, be something that is used to birth into the new age and we will be able to look back and see how the journey of suffering has produced something of wholeness, something of maturity. So if that is true of our resurrected king, how much more will that be true of us? So his people will be recognized by the suffering that they endure. His people will be purified by a faith that is refined by fire. It is in this sense that Paul can speak of filling up the afflictions of Jesus. Now, you probably uh, were puzzled by that phrase, right? In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Maybe some alarms are going off like, what do you mean? He's saying something's lacking in Christ's afflictions, like what Jesus did on the cross was was insufficient. Let me give you a little clue. When you come to passages of scripture where you're like, huh? Right? What you need to do is interpret those passages of scripture from other clearer passages of scripture. Right? So the clear teaching about Jesus and the cross is that his death on the cross accomplished our forgiveness and our right standing before God. That's throughout the New Testament. So you don't wanna read, right? You, wanna, you don't wanna read that confusion into that. You wanna read that clarity into this confusion, right? So he's not talking about that Jesus' death didn't satisfy the anger of God, didn't satisfy God's wrath, that we aren't adopted, we aren't reconciled because of Christ's work on the cross, that there's still some work left to do. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in fact, this word afflictions is never used in the New Testament to reference the cross, right? So what Paul is saying is, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. So what could be lacking in Christ's afflictions or in Christ's sufferings? 
What would be lacking is the endurance of it. It is not yet complete, right? Because he started something here and then maturity being presented full in Jesus is over here. And the path from there to there is a path of suffering. So what Paul is saying is I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning it's my turn to suffer. It's my turn to carry the cross, not to receive forgiveness, but it's my turn to carry the cross, which is putting to death the deeds of the flesh so that I can mature in my faith. I told you we're gonna be swimming in some deep water. Look at, uh, this is comparing Colossians 1.22, where it talks about Jesus, what happened in his body, right? So in his body of flesh, by his death, uh, in order to present you holy and blameless, he has reconciled you in his body. So we talked about that. That is past tense, reconciled. It already happened, right? So you have been reconciled back to God. But the next phrase has not yet happened. In order to present something in the future, that you will be presented to God holy and blameless and above reproach. That hasn't happened yet. We are not yet whole. So I've been adopted into his family, but I haven't grown up to receive, right? Being a full heir of the blessings that will be mine. I'm getting them in part now, but I don't have them in fullness yet. And the pathway from that immaturity to maturity is the pathway of suffering. So then Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Jesus has suffered in his flesh to bring about our reconciliation, which will result in us being presented holy and blameless if we continue in faith. So Jesus suffered to reconcile us to God and it is now for us to suffer so that we can be perfected before God. I remember a few years ago, and actually I remember, I remember it happening where uh, my father-in-law stood up before the church and he gave this line, and uh, I'm gonna butcher the line a little bit, but it was something to the effect of, in suffering, it is a place that, that my flesh would never want to go, but it is a place where my soul longs to be. Right, it is a place where there is pain, there is struggle, but it is a place where profound things are being shaped and being formed. And as I think about uh, this church body, repeatedly, I have seen people go through situations where the the picture that C.S. Lewis gives of suffering um, is like being in a dentist chair, and I feel bad for dentists because they usually are the illustrations for pain. Um, But the illustration of being in the dentist chair and uh, the dentist needing to drill And if he's a good dentist, the drill will keep drilling on, right? He's not gonna start and introduce pain and, oh, that hurts, well, let me stop, right? He's gonna drill until um, the healing is needed, 
right? The healing is found. So the drill drills on. And so people in our church body have walked through struggle, have walked through pain, and the drill has drilled on. And in facing death, God has birthed tremendous hope that they go through circumstances that I would say, I, I, I don't know how you walk through that, but by the grace of God. And then they walk through it and they hang on to hope. They hang on to the, to the beauty of God. They, 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 they hang on to, there is something more for me. Or I've talked with men who have had heart attacks, literally heart attacks, and they look back at those circumstances and say, yeah, that, that really kind of changed my life. That, that I became a new man through walking through a heart attack. Or women who have dealt with uh, miscarriages or infertility. And as they walk through that, God purified something of their resolve and something of their hope. Or parents who have been raising children with, with very unique needs and challenges. And God has trained them to love in ways they couldn't have imagined before to love in, in nuances and, 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 and in ways that, that, that aren't straightforward, but because of the needs of their child, God trained them in love. People who have received various diagnoses, right? And, 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 and they've gotten some of the worst news. I, I heard a story recently of somebody who had received a, a, a terrible diagnosis but they had hope for what God was doing in their life. They had hope of heaven and their family didn't understand what was going on with them because their family didn't have that same hope. They're like, what's the matter with you? I, I have hope, right? Because through suffering, God had refined and purified their hope. In our church body, we have people that are committed to dealing with sin that has been committed against them. And they're saying, I will not let that win victory in my life. I will not let that shame win in my life. I will address it. I will bring it into the light. I will confront as I need to confront. And they know that as they do that, their faith is being refined. That their suffering is not wasted. Your fight matters. And what I want you to know is that your fight matters for our church as well. Like your fight matters. And I alluded to this a few minutes ago. As you fight for faith through suffering and you allow the church body to come around you, you don't do it silently, you don't hide in it, but you let people know where you're at. You give the church the opportunity to grow up also, to, to bring gifts to you, to use their, their spiritual discernment on your behalf. So as you fight, it encourages our church to grow. So your willingness to <clears throat> allow us to come alongside you is a gift for the church. I would also wanna say your unwillingness to fight declares to the world around us, your unwillingness to fight declares to the next generation that Jesus is not worth it when we're unwilling to persevere in suffering, when we're unwilling to seek God in suffering, we, we, we communicate that Jesus is not that great of a treasure, but your relentless perseverance says to us that there is no greater treasure. 
And let me just say something about perseverance. I didn't say perfection, I said perseverance, right? Perseverance and perfection are two different things. Perseverance means the trajectory of your life is continuing in that direction, right? And sometimes it might do this for a little bit and it's going back up. Sometimes it might do this a little bit and it's going back up, right? That's perseverance. Don't confuse the two. Right? We need to be a church that perseveres. Don't live under the weight of perfection. Right? Let suffering do the work so that one day you'll be presented before the Father perfect. But in the meantime, we persevere. All right, number three. It is worth it, suffering is worth it to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. So Paul says, I became a minister, right? So he was given this responsibility. So he sees himself as a steward of God, that something God had given him um, the ability to do, the power to do, entrusted Paul with it, and that is to make the word of God fully known. So he sees himself as commissioned, Now, let me tell you what he means by fully known, or at least this is what I think he means by fully known. So uh, if you trace back a little bit, uh, Paul has used all of these um, uh, kind of uh, uh, just giant qualifiers, uh, and so he's saying all repeatedly, right? So for by him, all things were created. So by Jesus, all things were created. All things were created for him, He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And then through him to reconcile to himself all things. So the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So what Paul needs, what Paul needs to bring reconciliation to all things is he needs a gospel that speaks in fullness, right? Not impartiality. He's bringing reconciliation to all things, so he needs the gospel, he needs the word of God fully known, right? So he needs it completely known. I think, I think the role of suffering here in this part of the passage creates the opportunity for the word of God to be fully known. I would say in my life, in my life, there are aspects of the grace of God, the love of God, even truth about the gospel of God that apart from suffering, I would be completely blind to. That what suffering did for me is it painfully dug things out of my life that I thought were uh, helpful. It dug things out of my life that I thought I can't live without that. It dug things out of my life that I thought I need that to survive. God pulled those things out of my life and it hurt. But in that place, after that digging had happened, then the word of God could be fully known. Where in before, it would not have been. Number four, suffering is worth it because what is being made known is this great mystery. 
There is a great story that is being told. The mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations that has now been revealed to the saints. So what is this great mystery? This mystery is God's plan for how he is going to reconcile all things to himself. This mystery is not a timeline of events. This mystery is a person. This mystery is about Jesus making himself known. You see, the movement of world history before Jesus pointed to the need for our rescue. It pointed to the cross. So you read the whole Old Testament and it's saying, it's basically, it comes out with, there is an insufficient rescue going on here. Man cannot be reconciled to God. There needs to, be an, uh, 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 there needs to be an advocate for humanity. There needs to be one that would be able to lead perfectly. Nobody can do it. Failure after failure after failure. And then after Jesus, it looks back and says, based on what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, I have a future hope. So what, what's being made known here is the mystery, which is Jesus. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glorious mystery. So the secret that has been hidden and is now being revealed, is now being disclosed, is in the person of Jesus. But it comes to them um, in two significant ways that people didn't see coming. Is that it would be made known among the Gentiles. That's really good news for us because most of us are Gentiles, right? So what, what this is saying, and we read, you know, based on our historic bias, right? We're, we're living now 2018, uh, 2019, right? We're living here. We realize that the gospel has come here, but there was a point in time where that messianic hope, the one who would come to reconcile people to God was only a Jewish narrative, was only a Jewish story. He was going to be a Jewish Messiah, and so he would save just the Jewish people. So the mystery that's being revealed is the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, isn't just localized to the Jewish people, right? He is king over all of creation and he's wanting to reconcile all things to himself. So the good news is that Jesus is for the Gentiles, but it actually gets even better than that. Not only uh, is Jesus for the Gentiles, but the hope is, is that Christ is in you. Again, this is a radical departure from what was anticipated because where did God dwell among his people? He, he was dwelling in the temple. And so there are all of these rules and regulations of how can you get close to the presence of God? Even if you go to Israel today, right? The belief is that the Holy of Holies Right? So, so you can get so close and it's a, it's a holy site just to be near the wall close to the Holy of Holies. Right? Because the belief is the presence of God was localized there in the temple. The truth that what Jesus brought, the mystery revealed, is that God isn't localized in the temple. He's localized in his people. So Christ in us, alive in us, that's the hope of glory. The hope of glory is 
Christ is in us because of our adoption. We get a foretaste of heaven as the presence of God dwells in us so that we can grow up into maturity. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, right at the very beginning, as this mystery is being revealed, you can see that there is a breaking down of barriers by the power of the gospel. The mystery being revealed uh, is that it, 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 is, it is getting rid of things that were dividing people, dividing Jews and Gentiles. And, and what you need to realize is, apart from the gospel, we have never successfully in all of human history been able to deal with the differences of ethnicity, the differences of, of cultural background, right? Apart from the gospel of Jesus, there is not a utopia for the human race, right? We've tried to desegregate. We've tried to legislate, but you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate love. But the gospel can come into the church of Jesus Christ and say there is nothing that divides Jew and Gentile. There is nothing that divides black and white. There's nothing that divides, right? Hispanic, Spanish speaking and English speaking. The gospel brings us together and provides a treasure and a bridge that is far greater than anything that would divide us. And so in the early church, the early church, the validity of the gospel hinged on that issue. Right? That's why Paul was so uptight on, no, no, you, you can't make uh, Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. That's not, the, that's not the gospel. The gospel is bigger than that. So the gospel, right, by itself, making known this mystery is fighting against these boundaries that sin has set up between us. Now, here's one of the things that I love to tell you is God has called uh, Isai and Edith Garcia to Bridgeton, New Jersey to do a church plant in a city that is a third black, a third white, and a third Hispanic. And their commitment is a multi-ethnic church. Why? Because they have the conviction that the gospel is bigger than ethnicity. And that we can actually, through the power of the gospel, make advances against racism in our own city by focusing on Jesus, right? So, so we get to see that work among us. So I would just say, be praying for Isai and Adith as they have started their pastorate that is focusing on Bridgeton as the beginning of this particular church plant. All right, so the mystery revealed is that Jesus is the one that reconciles all things to God. And without the reconciliation of nation to nation, of race to race, of social group to social group, the reconciliation of all things to him has not yet begun. So it is worth it for your sake. It is worth it because suffering is not wasted it is worth it to make the word of God fully known and it is worth it to make known the mystery of God. I have one more point I wanna share with you. And this one is a little bit more immediate in its impact. 
right? Most of these have a distance to it, even my analogy at the beginning, like you're gonna wait till you get to the top of the mountain, it's gonna be worth it there, right? So this last point has some uh, immediate benefit, and it's this. It is worth walking through suffering because in that place, you get to know him better. In that place, you get to, you get to enjoy him in new ways. And this is where I see this in the passage. So Paul starts out saying, this is my job description. Uh, I, I have this proclamation that I need to do. Um, I'm warning or admonishing everyone. I'm teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's how he's bringing them to maturity uh, in Christ. That's, that's his plan. But then, if you look down later on uh, at the bottom of the passage in verse 29, we see I toil. He says, for this I toil, that means he's working hard, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, so right here, we have this unique phrase that brings together man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Paul's struggling, Paul's working, Paul's competing, Paul's battling, but he's doing it with his, God's energy that God powerfully works within me. See, I think often, often our view of, of, of obeying God, of partnership with God, looks more like the military. So Paul would be like, you know, hey God, it's me, Paul, reporting for duty. And God would say, well, I want you to uh, proclaim. Uh, okay, sir, would you like me to proclaim through uh, admonishment and teaching? Yes, sir, that sounds good. And then Paul is to go off and do his job and report back to God, hey, I, I did my work, I did my job. Um, are you know? Are, are you pleased? Do you have anything else for me to do? That is not the New Testament picture of serving in the kingdom of God. There is something beautiful about a disposition of a heart to serve, a heart that says, "God, I'll do what you want me to do." He is our King. Um, we are bond servants or slaves. That, so there are these these images, but but that's not a mature picture. A mature picture would, would, would bring both intimacy and partnership into the picture. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Paul's working, he's struggling, but he's not distant from God. He's not, uh, he left God's office and now is going to do the work. He's working with God's energy as God powerfully is at work within him. There is a picture of intimacy and partnership. The other model reminds me of the prodigal son. Do you remember when the prodigal son returns back to the father? And we know the story that the prodigal has been like rehearsing when he's gonna, okay, I gotta confront my dad, I gotta talk to him, and okay, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, take me on as your servant. And he's like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I could maybe be a servant, work in the servant's quarters, that's better than what I have now. Right, so he gets before his dad, and he says, Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your, and his dad interrupts him because no son of the father's is gonna be his servant. So what does the father say? Bring the best robe, put it on my son. Rings for his finger. Come on, hurry, put them on, let's go. It's time to celebrate because my son who was dead is now alive. 
right? God, God's picture is not one of general and we're just in his army. God's picture is one of intimacy and partnership. He wants to go with us. And I think sometimes we are laboring and we're working and we're toiling with all of our might, but we're doing that independent of the voice of God. And God wants to be with us, sharing with us his energy, working within us. But we're too busy getting things done to stop and listen to his voice. About, um, it was last spring and we were praying as a, as a pastor's team. And uh, Caleb Howard uh, kind of stopped our prayer time and said, guys, I wanna, I wanna share like a word with you. Um, and this is what I would call a prophetic word. I don't know if you're familiar with that, that terminology, but a prophetic word isn't like a word just about the future. A prophetic word would be a word from God that would be relevant for now, right? So it's something that it would be uh, consistent with the character and nature of God in scripture, but it would say of all the truth about God, here's what you need to hear right now. And what Caleb said is, I think what God is saying to us is that he wants us to know that he's available to us. That he's, that he's, that he's available. That if we, if we stop, if we listen, if we lean into him, if we seek him, he will be found. Now with a prophetic word, right? What you do with a prophetic word is say, is this consistent with the word of God and scripture? And say, is that consistent with scripture? Yeah, absolutely. But then I also test it. I also like was tracking it over months. And what I found was every time I was in a situation where I lacked wisdom, where I didn't know how to move forward, if I paused and sought God, he would be found by me. And I think that's what Paul is telling us. That we don't need to just go get the job done on our own and report back to, to the commander but that he wants intimacy and partnership, that we would go together. And as we face adversity, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe, right? So as we face struggle, we can get close to God, hear his voice. He is available to us. So, the Apostle Paul is coming down from the mountain. We're on our way up. Some of us might be closer to the top than others. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know that the, the struggle you're in right now, the suffering that you're walking through right now, it's gonna be worth it. It's gonna be worth it because it benefits other people. There are generations that are longing to see your fidelity. They are longing to see your perseverance. So it's gonna be worth it for their sake. It's gonna be worth it because suffering is never wasted in the body of Christ. And it's gonna be worth it to make the word of God fully known. It's gonna be worth it because we are unveiling a mystery of Jesus. And it's gonna be worth it because we get to know him better. So that's the encouragement you get from the apostle Paul as you're climbing up.
question is then, what are you gonna do with it? Right, what, what are you going to do with the truth about that there's hope in suffering? What are you gonna do with that information? Are you gonna dismiss it? Paul's crazy. That's unrealistic, that is not possible, that is not true. Greg, you don't understand what I've been through and you're right, I don't. I don't know all the nuances and contours of the suffering that you've walked through. But what I do know is that the word of God offers hope to all who suffer, all things. He's reconciling all things. Every corner of the planet, every corner of your story can be reconciled to God. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the mystery of Jesus revealed. So I wanna leave you with that as a question for you. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight for faith or will you shrink back? So as uh, these guys uh, lead us in this next song, this is a great song about faith, about belief. And there's an invitation from the Father that he would want to awaken faith in you to believe what he says to be true. So I just wanna encourage you to listen, to listen to what God is saying to you this morning. So you're welcome to stand, you're welcome to stay where you are uh, as you listen in close to what God is saying to you. Father everlasting, the all-creating. 